Please join me as I open our time in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to be here as your people. Lord, we come to you with countless imperfections and struggles and failures, and yet you chose to redeem just such a people as us. Lord, you knew what we would be after you saved us. You know what we were before you saved us. And yet, Lord, you still chose to call us your own. So we thank you. Today, Lord, as we have the opportunity in our morning service to celebrate the Lord's table, it will be a reminder that you died for us as sinners. And I pray even now, Lord, we would begin the process of self-examination to make sure we have confessed our sins and that we come to the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. And I pray, Lord, that as we have the opportunity to open your word this morning, both in Sunday school and then Pastor Steve in the main service, that you would open our ears, allow us to hear your truth. I pray, Lord, that you would give all those who are teaching at Lakeside in any capacity this morning, I pray that you give them empowerment by your spirit to speak the truth clearly and accurately. We ask all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to turn in your Bibles, in Hebrews chapter 12, we are making progress through the final portion of this book. The writer of Hebrews spent a lot of time teaching accurate theology for the purpose of making certain that those who were in the church not only knew of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, but that they understood turning away from Jesus Christ was a significant thing. Among other things, the book of Hebrews is a warning. It's a warning against anybody who thinks, you know what, I'm around church, I'm in church, yeah, I believe something in Jesus, but there must be another way. I must have something else. Maybe I'll go to something other than Jesus for my salvation. It's one of the overarching purposes of the book is to tell anyone who comes in contact with its truth, there is no way to God apart from Jesus Christ, period. You can't get there through Old Testament sacrifices. You can't get through there through your works. You can't get there through cleansing rituals. You can only get to God by faith in Jesus Christ. Faith has always been the only way to truly find favor with God. That was the case before Christ came to the earth. Hence, Hebrews chapter 11 with the great hall of faith, Old Testament saints who by faith were able to follow the Lord. And that's the case on this side of the cross. Faith has always been the only way to find favor with God and yet there seems to be something hardwired into sinful humanity after the fall that causes mankind to think there must be another way. I can do it on my own. Maybe I can find a way through human effort or through human wisdom or through human understanding. By one of those means, maybe I can get around this whole Jesus thing. I'm, Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Maybe there's a loophole. There's not. It's what the whole book of Hebrews is about. Judaism isn't a loophole. You can't go back to the compliance with the Old Testament rituals and sacrifices. It's only in Jesus Christ. This book, if anything, it's just a continuing praise of Jesus Christ and his sufficiency. And yet time and again throughout the book, the warning is given to people in the church, don't turn away. 
I'm just going to reference a few places, but for example, in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through the first part of 3, for this reason, because of all these truths that he stated in the very first chapter about Jesus Christ, for this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that, we, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved inalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And of course, that's not a true question. It answers itself. You can't escape. There is no escape. Hebrews 3 Verse 12, again, talking to people who were receiving it. These are people in the church, people claiming to know Jesus Christ. They say, I believe in Jesus. This warning is given. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. The writer was aware that amongst the wheat there are tares. And particular attention is devoted to this issue called apostasy. Claiming to know Jesus Christ, living amongst believers, experiencing all the blessings of being a part of a church such as Lakeside, and then turning your back completely upon it and walking away. That's the strong warning in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. Talking about apostates, for in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to remove them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. This isn't talking about someone who was genuinely saved who does this. It's talking about somebody who participated in all the benefits. They felt the fellowship. They felt the blessings of the gifts of the Holy Spirit practiced by other people that impacted their lives and yet after that they walked away from everything. And the point is there's no hope because there's no more gospel. That's it. You walk away from Jesus Christ under those circumstances, there is no hope for you. A warning such as that was repeated in chapter 10. Again, a strong exhortation against apostasy and the tone of warning is found throughout the entire book. And as we come to the end of chapter 12, a chapter that began with an exhortation based on the faith of all those who lived previously, that cloud of witnesses, this exhortation is to us is to walk in obedience. Lay aside any encumbrances. Get away from the sin that entangles us and stops us from running the race. Press on, keeping our eyes on Jesus. At the end of chapter 12, we run across another warning. As I look through chapter 13, there are admonitions in chapter 13, but I think this is the final strong warning about apostasy in the book. And this strong warning, I believe in its context, we see it has to do with how do you respond to the voice of God. And when I say the voice of God, I don't mean that we're hearing a literal voice now. The voice of God is His Word revealed to us in Scripture. How do we respond to God's Word? A proper response to God's Word will result in a, place, a life pleasing to Him, us living in a certain way for His glory. But an inappropriate response to God's Word is catastrophic. In fact, the warnings here make it clear it can result in a terrifying judgment. So this morning, we're going to cover verses 25 to 29. 
this final exhortation of chapter 12. And in this context, I've just divided it as I always do into some easily understandable format or try to be easily understandable. I have three proper responses to God's Word. I look at these verses and I I see three proper responses to God's Word. So first, I'm going to read this section as a unit and then we'll break it down and we'll look at those responses. Beginning at verse 25, we see this. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So from these verses, the first response The first proper response to God's word is this. Accept his word. Accept his word. Verse 25 has this beginning clause. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. As I was going through and preparing yesterday, and as I was going through my mind what I had studied, I realized I think this little clause sums up the entire book of Hebrews. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. That may not jump out, but I really think that's the whole point of the book. Now to develop this thought to make sure that you understand why I say that, I want to remind you of what I taught last week and some of the prior weeks. In Hebrews 12, there was this imagery, and I covered it in detail, of the nation of Israel gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai. They've been out of slavery for three months. Last week we covered the specific Old Testament texts, or excuse me, last week we dealt with the specific Old Testament texts and the references. I won't go through those again. But you had this picture of the nation of Israel assembled before Mount Sinai. And they were standing there and God came into their presence. God told Moses, get the people together, I'm going to speak to them. At Mount Sinai, God ultimately gave the Ten Commandments to Moses and established the terms of the covenant that he would make with his people. And when the people were standing there, after they were prepared and it was basically roped off, so to speak, if you touch that, you die, it was a horrific scene. It would have terrified any of us. Fire and thunder and the ground shaking. And God in that environment laid out the terms of his covenant with the people. And so when verse 25 says, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking, there are overtones or shades of God in that context. 
Because the God who spoke at Sinai and terrified the people is still the God who speaks. It's interesting because this book began with a focus on God speaking to his people. If you turn back just to the very beginning of the book, Hebrews chapter 1. The book opens this way. Verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, verse 2, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So when the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 25, talks about not refusing him who is speaking, it's not only that it's just God speaking, but God speaking through Jesus Christ. We understand from John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. Jesus is the Word. Here's the bottom line. To refuse him who is speaking is a refusal of Jesus Christ. It's a rejection of Jesus Christ. God's perfect revelation as the only way to salvation. As one commentator noted, the refusal involved here is a deliberate and culpable refusal to listen and obey. These warnings always strike me again because it's written not to the world. This isn't a broadcast to the general masses of the world saying, look out. This is a warning to people like us gathering in churches, naming the name of Christ. Ultimately, it's a warning to those in the churches that if you walk away, there's no hope. That's going to be tied into our second point. But understand, when God has given His revelation in Jesus Christ, there's only one acceptable response. We accept it. We have to believe it. To refuse the one who is speaking is to refuse the only offer of salvation given to sinners. And it's faith in Jesus Christ. So that first proper response, we must accept his word, leads to the second proper response. And they're very much interrelated. Heed his warnings. Heed his warnings. Continuing in verse 25, it says, For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he is promising, yet, and yet once more shake not only the earth but also the heaven. This expression yet once more denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken and of created things, so that those things which cannot shake, be shaken may remain. The writer, in the context of this expression, is looking backwards and forwards. He's pointing back to an historical event, that event at Mount Sinai that conjured up an image of terror, but he's also looking forward to something God will do in the future at the ultimate culmination of history. But the first aspect of this, he builds an argument from a lesser to a greater Meaning, if this happened in this lesser context, then absolutely it's going to happen in this greater context. And he bases it on the fact that in the past, when God's people rejected his explicit warnings, they suffered a terrible price. He says, for if those, who, if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, and this again is going back to the nation of Israel. 
we have that generation standing together three months out of generations of slavery. They're standing. They've seen miracles. They've seen the plagues in Egypt. They've seen the sea part and they walk through on dry ground and they've seen a powerful army wiped out by the sea closing back up on them. And now they're standing in front of a holy God and they see a mountain quaking and it's dark and it's light and it's sound as such and the trumpet's getting louder and you can almost picture them, please make it stop. And I always think it's interesting how they responded. You don't have to turn there, but in Exodus 19, verse 7 to 8, it makes it clear what they did. In verse 7 it says this, So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. So Moses took what God had told him one-on-one and took it to the leaders and the people. Verse 8. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. That's the right answer. Every one of us would do the same thing today. Absolutely, we'll do it. But we know from biblical history they didn't obey. It's almost that they did the opposite. All that the Lord has said, we'll make sure we don't do. And in fact, the writer of the book of Hebrews has already used their historical disobedience as a warning. Go back for a moment to Hebrews chapter 3. In Hebrews chapter 3, I'll just go to verses 16 to 19 because it summarizes... What happened when all those people said, whatever you say, Lord, we'll do it, didn't do it? Beginning at verse 16 of chapter 3. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. What the writer is doing in chapter 12 is echoing this warning and also the imagery that he's already included of that fateful moment. All those who heard God's word at Mount Sinai and then refused to obey it, which was almost the entirety of the adult generation, they received judgment. They never found God. They never found rest. And the writer is making this argument. Look, that was a lesser revelation than the revelation of Jesus Christ. When I say lesser, I don't mean that it was less authoritative or anything like that, but we have Jesus Christ. They were looking forward to a mystery. All those who had faith in the Old Testament didn't fully understand all of redemptive history, and yet it's revealed to us after the cross, after Jesus Christ came and walked on the earth and He died an atoning death, we have the perfect revelation. That's what was described at the very beginning of this book. In the last days, He spoke in another way, but now He's spoken to us in His Son. So the writer says, if those didn't escape... When they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. In other words, Jesus, this greater revelation, if those who rejected that word suffered, 
don't think that there won't be far greater consequences on this side of the cross. And it jumps out at me how he says it. Much less will we. Again, this isn't generic out there in the world where we see all the sinners and we think they get what they deserve. It's painful that we think that way too much because it detaches us from the reality of what we deserve. But in this context, what he's talking about here is that there are some in the church who are in danger, not because they'll lose their salvation, but because they're so comfortable in the church, they're not really saved. And they go along and they go through the motions and they say the right words and they have the right associations. But he's saying to anyone like that, look, apostasy carries certain consequences. And the consequences are horrific. And he paints that picture by this contrast between what it was at Mount Sinai and what it will be at the final judgment. In verse 26, he said, And his voice shook the earth then. Again, he's just going back to the fact that at the time when God came down to Mount Sinai and gathered his people, the ground was really shaking. Exodus 19, verse 18 says, The whole mountain quaked violently. Now remember, that was part of the terror. It's not just that they're hearing these sounds that are too loud and God's voice was like thunder and they see the light and the flash and the gloom. But everything was shaking. If you've ever been in an earthquake, and I know many of you in this room have been in California. I've never been in a massive earthquake, but I've been, Debbie and I have been in earthquakes that knocked us out of bed in the middle of the night. When I say knocked us out, it just woke us up. Jumping around and we were on the third floor of an apartment building and we jumped, run around circle and it's like, we can't do anything. <laughs> but you don't know. I mean, it's scary. When everything is moving and shaking. And it would be even more so when you're standing at the foot of a mountain and it looks like we could die at any moment. In fact, you've been told if you go too close, you are going to die. But as terrifying as that historical reality was, the writer's pointing forward. He says, but now he has promised, saying, yet once more will I shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression yet once more denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. This is a promise of God, meaning this isn't something that may occur. This is an historical reality. This will happen. He's going to shake not only the earth, but the heaven. That doesn't mean the literal heaven where we're going to be one day. What it means is all of the created order, everything, is going to be rocked from its foundations. And this prophetic word, this promise of God, actually occurred in the book of Haggai. I won't ask you to turn there because if I, and I realize I don't have my hard copy Bible, if I had it, it would take me a few minutes to find Haggai. But in Haggai 2, verses 5 through 7, you can look it up on your own later. Haggai chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. God was promising and encouraging the remnant of true believers at the dedication of the second temple. And here's what was said. 
As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more, in a little while, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also, and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. What God was doing in its original context was promising His true remnant of people one day it's all going to be set in order. We live in a sin-filled world with all kinds of injustice, all kinds of horrors, and yet one day God's going to shake everything to its core. And the writer of Hebrew takes that prophecy for what it was, an actual promise of God that one day this is going to occur, and he explains it to us as to the significant for us. In Hebrews 12, verse 27, he says, This expression yet once more. So he's providing the explanation. This expression yet once more denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Here is what the writer is doing. He's interpreting this prophecy in a way that is consistent with all of Scripture. One day, the material world will be removed by God. Throughout the Bible, you see a common theme that occurs. There's a promise that one day there's going to be something called the day of the Lord. It's referenced in many contexts. Many Old Testament prophecies allude to it. It's referenced in the New Testament. But it's pointing to the day when God will settle all accounts. For example, in 2 Peter 3.10, this is just an example. There are countless others. He says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. The book of Revelation is filled with imagery of the catastrophic consequences when God begins to mess with the material universe. God created the universe... In a material sense, he will end the universe in a material sense. For time's sake, I won't read it all, but for example, in Revelation 6, verses 12 to 17, it's going through these sealed judgments. And mountains and islands moved out of their places, and people in absolute terror. And the people are saying to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand. That's the imagery being pointed to. It's a terrifying reality for anyone who rejects Jesus Christ. All the more terrifying for those who claim to have loved him and then turn their backs on him. This earthly world, this created universe is not permanent. It's taken me a lot of years to actually believe that. What do I mean by that? I'm attached to material things, sentimental things. 
So my mom's not here today. She's not feeling well, but we're in the process of selling our house. That's emotional for us because it was the house that I grew up in, my sister grew up in. It's really the last memories to our dad, even though he died back in 1984. And there's a part of me that if I had unlimited money, I would say, I'll keep it forever. And then I remember that it might not even last another 50 years. And certainly that house, for all its good memories, isn't going to be in heaven with me. And those kind of things require some perspective. But the reality is there is nothing on this earth, in this material universe, that we can cling to. Unbelievers on that day will not have any solace in the fact that, well, maybe I used to claim something. The more I studied the Scripture over all these years, I'm just always amazed at how well the various pieces and parts fit together. Even though they were written by different authors at different times, you see the commonality of the fact that the one author is God. And so in the context where we are, where God's going to shake all the material universe and He's going to destroy it, and it's going to be the day of judgment, there are going to be some who were in churches saying, hey, I'm on your team. And yet Matthew 7 has that terrifying account in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And the people in verse 22, hey God, didn't I, I did this and I did that. And didn't we do all these things in your name? And we hear what the words are. I can't imagine more terrifying words. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That is a strong, sober warning. That is a terrifying picture. That's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is conveying. Don't neglect the warnings of God. You've got to heed those warnings. You've got to understand that these things are true. And yet, even as we have these terrifying and sobering warnings... There's hope for God's true children. Because if you truly know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've truly placed your faith in Him, then you don't have to fear the judgment that's coming as horrific as it is. And we see a smidgen of that at the end of verse 27. God's going to do all of that destructive shaking and destroying of the created things so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. That's the hope for God's true children. Because that's where we're going to be. We're never going to be cast out. We have a hope in heaven of eternity with God. And God and His kingdom will not be shaken. If you know Jesus Christ, you praise God because we deserve His wrath. We deserve that judgment, yet we receive the mercy. And that leads to the final proper response to God's Word. We've got to accept His Word. We've got to heed His warnings. And third and finally, we've got to live with gratitude. Live with gratitude. Verse 28 provides one of those helpful scriptural so what's. You don't have to look for an application point. It's provided really clearly. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, meaning those of us who are truly in Christ, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service 
with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. This is really the culmination for us of the privilege of being forgiven by God. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, this is our present reality if we know Christ. For all the warnings of the book of Hebrew to apostates, warning pretenders that you will be found out, the reality is the vast majority of the encouragement and the exhortations are given to people that he knows are truly saved. And notice how this is phrased. Since we receive a kingdom. This is a gift from God. We didn't earn a kingdom. We don't deserve a kingdom. Rather, by God's gracious mercy, He's given it to us. We've received it. We received a free gift from a heavenly Father who loves us and have, has mercy on us and who will preserve us until the end. In John, the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verses 27 to 29, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. It's a beautiful picture. That's what God's given us if we know Christ. Remember, and we covered it in previous verses, but just looking in Hebrews chapter 12, looking back at verses 22, he began to describe what our heavenly reality will be one day. But you have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels. And the church is there. And all the redeemed saints and God the Father and God the Son... So while the warnings of the book of Hebrews and all of Scripture are real and they matter and they're constantly given to people in the church by the same token, they're not a reason for God's true children to fear because we've been given an unshakable kingdom. And what we're told is how do we respond to this great reality? Let us show gratitude. Let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable servants with reverence and awe. What is being conveyed to us in its simplest terms is that of all people we should be permanently grateful. We should live with constant gratitude because of the gift we've been given that we don't deserve. We should live our lives as a continual and never-ending act of worship. I am as guilty as anyone as thinking of Sunday as the day of worship. Because we come here and we worship. And I think of worship with our music. And I think of worship through the Lord's table, which we'll celebrate today. But the reality is, Scripture paints a different picture that our worship is never-ending. It's 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Trying to think, as I've said that already, whether our sleep is an act of worship, but I think it is. Maybe it's not conscious, but it's a recognition of our dependence on God. And even sleep reminds us we live in a fallen world and our bodies can't go on forever. 
Every moment of every day, we should be striving to please God with every aspect of our lives. It's how we can live pleasing to Him. It's how we can live in an acceptable way. And we're supposed to have an attitude of reverence and awe, never forgetting the holiness and majesty of God. Scripture paints an interesting dichotomy because there's one sense in which I don't doubt if Jesus was here, we could get a hug from the Lord because He loves us tenderly like a children. But I don't think we'd be flippantly slapping high fives with Jesus and hanging out because He's still a holy, sovereign God. And so we have this picture of the intimacy we have with God because of Jesus Christ that we can come into His presence and be enveloped by His loving arms, but we should never be so casual that we forget that God is a holy and righteous judge. I think that's the friendly brief reminder in verse 29, for our God is a consuming fire. That phraseology comes from Deuteronomy chapter 4 and a strong warning against going after other gods. God's covenant people are being warned, don't go after other gods for the Lord, verse 24 of Deuteronomy 4, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. It's a reminder to us, even as we rejoice and praise the Lord for the fact that He saved us and that we can have an intimate, close relationship with the God of the universe, we still have to remember He's the God of the universe and we're not. And even God as a consuming fire is that final lingering picture of judgment. The consuming fire that one day will judge unrighteousness. And the only reason we escape that judgment and that we escape that fire is because we've been cleansed by the blood of Christ, which should cause us, when we're thinking rightly, to live in a continual state of gratitude, of thankfulness. So let me end this teaching time with a great picture of hope. It's always a balancing act, looking at the Word of God. Not because there's any issues with the Word of God, but because our hearts are fickle. And you don't ever want to soften strong warnings because God gave them, because there's need for strong warnings for some people. But you also don't ever want to forget the picture of hope and encouragement that God gives to His chosen children. So I want to end with what is, to me, one of the most hopeful portions of Scripture I know. And there are countless. But it's a picture of what we'll see one day. It's the kind of picture I go to whenever somebody that I love has passed away. Or when the world is a mess or even when I'm struggling in my own heart with issues. So let me offer this to you. No matter how many times you may have disappointed yourself, no matter how many times you may have fallen short, no matter how many times it's been true of you, Lord, what you said I will do, and then you go out and by Monday you've fallen on your face. Let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, don't give up. God has a better day coming for all of us. In Revelation chapter 21, we see a picture of what will be when all the shaking of God is done. 
Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Praise God that that day is coming. And because of the death of Jesus Christ, which we will remember today at the Lord's table, our presence in the new heaven and the new earth is possible. So let us respond rightly to the one who is speaking to us. Please join me as I close our time in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy. Lord, we can only marvel that you save sinners like us. Lord, you saved us knowing what we were, but you saved us even knowing what we would be after you saved us. You know our struggles, Lord, and our failures and our stumbles and our moments of rebellion and disobedience. And yet through all of that, Lord, we take great comfort from the fact that you loved us enough to send your Son to die for all of our sins. Past, present, or future. Lord, that is incomprehensible. What a gift you have given us. Lord, help us live rightly in light of your gift. Lord, I know every one of us here, after becoming a believer, has sinned against you. Lord, we thank you for your cleansing mercy. We pray that we would truly repent of all of our sins. Particularly, Lord, anything that's not been confessed, I pray that we would repent of it before the Lord's table today. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us and strengthen us to walk in obedience. Lord, you've given us everything we need for life and godliness. You've given us your spirit. You've given us your word. Lord, help us submit our wills to you. Lord, you are the Lord of our lives. Help us live under your lordship. And Lord, if there are any here who don't know Jesus Christ, Lord, who perhaps may be going through the motions but don't truly have a heart devoted to you, I pray that you would break their hearts and that you would draw them to salvation so that none of us would be amongst those who hear those horrible words, depart from me, I never knew you. Lord, we pray that you'd watch over the rest of our time of worship. Help us live with gratitude and joy in light of your amazing mercy. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.